Amen. Man. Yeah, appreciate it, man. There we go. Well, awkward. Oh, yes. There we go. Keep it awkward. Awkward man hug. Fantastic. I'm going to start out by saying this, and it always perhaps seems obligatory, but I want you to know that it's genuine, that um, y'all are blessed that, um, that you have Chris as your lead pastor. Uh, Chris has been a faithful servant. It's my joy to, to have been a co-laborer with him here in Snohomish County. Uh, here's what I know to be true about Chris. One is he loves Jesus way more than you. I mean, not more than you do, but he loves Jesus more than he loves you. But quickly on the heels of that, right, that didn't come out the way that I thought. <laughs> but quickly on the heels of that is, uh, is his love for you as his church family. And that's been crystal clear in all my interactions with him. And I also recognize that it is a potentially terrifying thing to hand your pulpit over to somebody else. And it's a privilege I take with a great deal of seriousness, and I'm grateful for the opportunity. I hope that I come close to matching Chris's ability to serve you well through God's word. The good news is that if I don't, there's a big set of doors right there that I can quickly sprint through. You're going to have a hard time catching me. So we're going this morning in Psalm 24. You guys have been working through the Psalms uh, this summer. And I'm glad for that. I love the Psalms because they do introduce us to who the Savior is. And Jesus was really clear that all of the scriptures point to him, including the Psalms. Luke 24, verses 44 and 45, he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. When you read through the Psalms, you are getting an introduction to who the Savior is. And Jesus himself said, when you read the Psalms, you're reading about me. Now, Psalm 24 is a little bit interesting because it is coming on the heels of a particular battle. We're not going to get into that a whole lot. So I don't want you to think that you know, Jesus was there physically fighting that battle, but Jesus was showing up. And this psalm reveals to us how awesome Jesus is, but also reveals to us the state of our condition. We're going to find some troubling language in here. There's some requirements that the psalmist is going to put out that if we're really honest, we have to say, I don't match up to this. I don't line up with the expectation that has been put out there. I don't come anywhere close to matching the standard that is there. We're going to start in verses 1 and 2. David writes this, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell within, excuse me, dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Here's the first big thing you need to grasp and I want you to be encouraged by this. That God has complete and total control over everything. He's the king. Frequently when either I'm praying at dinner with my family or when I'm in a counseling setting, I'll often start a prayer this way, particularly when we have like these awesome days where it's dry and it's warm and monsoon season doesn't seem like it's quickly coming to us that we can go out and delight in it. 
and just to pray, reminding ourselves that, God, if you can control the weather patterns that are giving me this glorious day to operate in, if you can handle that, then you can handle all of the so-called smaller things that are happening within my life. God is complete control rule over everything. Now, I want to teach you this. There's uh, this cool Hebrew word, and when you translate the word um, everything into English, it actually means everything. No part of your life is outside of the touch and the power and the control of God. And there's a better than good chance that there is a large number of you this morning that need to be reminded of that truth. Your life in certain areas may seem in total disarray. Your finances may be thrashed. You may have relationships that are fraying at their core. You may be facing decisions about where to work or even trying to find work, and it's easy to grow into a place of despair and begin to think nothing is going to work. God has total and complete control over everything. I'm not trying to minimize your pain. I don't want to minimize the hurt that you may be experiencing. I just want to bring some truth alongside of that. In the midst of the hurt and the pain and the woundedness, you have a God who reigns supreme and touches absolutely everything. He knows what he is doing. And the psalmist wants us to grasp that. That we worship a God who is in total, complete control. And we want that. Because consider the alternative. If our God was not in total and complete control, then he has absolutely no right to demand our total and complete allegiance. If God's not in control of everything, we may as well just go tubing right now. But actually, that sounds kind of fun. Can we, can we organize like a church-like tubing trip? Okay, awesome. Y'all heard it. Chris Rich is funding our, the church tubing trip and inviting me as a guest speaker. Cool. He has control over everything. And the psalmist is going to remind us of that. In this psalm, you're going to find there's a phrase that's used five times but it's only ever used in this psalm. It doesn't appear anywhere else in Scripture. It is the King of Glory. It's the title that David is now assigning to God. You are the King of Glory. Challenging question for you to think of. You don't need to answer out loud. You might need a moment to sort through it. As you think of God in your mind, as you wrestle with your relationship with God within the state of your soul, do you view him as being the king of glory? Our tendency is to reduce God to a very puny, manageable, stick-into-my-pocket kind of God and only break him out when things aren't going quite well, or the other extreme, I only talk to God when things are going awesome, and then as soon as things go bad, then I shut him out. And we treat him as puny, but the psalmist says, no, this is the king of glory. He has authority, and he has power. He has control, and he has interest. 
the king of glory is who we get to interact with on a regular basis. If we would choose to interact with him. I don't want to read into a room full of people that I don't know. But I can understand the temptation to treat God as my buddy. Now, I want you to have a warm, friendly relationship with God. But I hope you're doing so out of a sense and an attitude that says, this is the king. He demands my allegiance. He has full power and control over me and the affairs of my life. But he's also trustworthy. I'm willing to bow the knee before him because I know that ultimately he is on my side. That everything that God is doing in my life is either for my good or for his glory. Now, I can't remember who said it, so, and I, I believe attribution matters. All that being said, I, I'm not the one who came up with this. But at any given moment, God may be doing 10,000 different things in your life, and you might be aware of maybe three of them. For the ones that you are aware of, will you worship him? And for the ones that you can't even begin to see, will you worship him? I would have you think back to maybe where you were 10 years ago. Could you imagine where you were at today, good, bad, or indifferent? And can you see that God has been leading you this whole time? That is promises that he's made repeatedly. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. That those remain true. The king of glory who owns everything, who controls everything, who's in charge of everything, who directs everything, and who has every reason to exclude us from his presence, instead invites us into it. Let's be really honest. Does God need you? No. Which makes his invitation that much more astounding that he wants to be with you, that he wants to be in a relationship with you, that he wants to talk with you and for you to talk back to him, that he wants you to be a part of what he's doing. And he may unfold it to you little by little by little over time, but it's a partnership that he views he has with you. He doesn't need us, but he chooses to invite us into his presence but there's conditions. Verses 3 and 4 of Psalm 24. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. God demands clean heart and pure hands. Now, who among us can meet that expectation? Clean heart, pure hands. 
I'm not proud to admit this, but I've already sinned like 32 times this morning. It's not even noon. I've put myself first. I've allowed my thoughts to be distracted. I have thought arrogantly about myself. And again, it's not even noon. Who meets these expectations? It's similar to what the psalmist writes in Psalm 15. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart, who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor nor takes up reproach against his friend, and whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change, who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved. When you read through Psalm 15, there's maybe one of those things that we're all pretty good at doing unless you are in the mortgage industry or you sell cars, which is to not put out money at an interest. Other than that, we all fail at Psalm 15, which means we're failing at Psalm 24. So help me make sense of this. How then... This God who invites me into his presence and put these conditions on it, how in the world do I fit into that? I'm acutely aware of the ways that I sin and fail and fall and I'm flawed. Who can meet this? Psalm 24, verses 5 and 6. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. God demands righteousness. And he generously supplies it in Christ. This is why it matters that when Jesus says in Luke that all the Psalms talk about me, that we read the Psalms through the lens of who Christ is, what Christ has done on our behalf. Because if you just read the text yourself in Psalm 24, we're doomed. That seems horrific. And Jesus steps in and says, no, that's about me. And I'm doing for you what you have no shot at doing yourself. Now, Chris said I work for New Ground Counseling. So I think in counseling terms a lot, probably a little too much and... It might get exhausting for certain friends of mine, like, oh, gosh, Carl, can you not put everything into, like, the grid of, like, some kind of, like, crisis? And well, Actually, no, I can't. That's just how my brain works. I'm sorry. And in counseling terms, there's a, and you may be familiar with this, this idea of behavior modification. It's a, it's a school of thought. And I will tell you, behavior modification works until it doesn't. And then when it doesn't, you're left crumbling, going, what do I do now? I had all these things in place. I had my systems and my formula. They were all in place. And my system and my formula let me down. I would ask then instead, instead of behavior modification, to allow for gospel transformation. 
That's not to say that there's not a place for systems and formulas and steps. They can be useful, but that's not the priority. The priority is, am I willing to allow my mind and my heart to be transformed by the gospel truth that I have nothing to offer, but Jesus did it for me? And rise up and celebrate that. Now look, I've spent the better part of this message reminding us that we're in trouble. And that left to ourselves, we're doomed. And that we are broken, fallen, flawed people. And all that is true. But it's not the complete truth of who we are. Because the other part of who we are, if you're a follower of Christ, this is who you are. You are an adopted son or daughter of the king of glory. You are the object of his eternal, unending, unyielding, unbending, undying love, care, attention, and affection. That his eyes are constantly on you. That everything that he's doing in your life is for your good and for your benefit that everything he is allowing into your life, he knows that it's hard, but he promises to be with you, that you are not alone, that you are chosen, that you're valued, that you have purpose, that you have meaning, and you have significance in his eyes. So both truths are, are true at the same time. We are hopelessly in trouble, and yet we're hopelessly, endlessly loved. And we balance these truths. And I bring up both of these because we have to get a good picture in our minds of how desperately we need the saving touch of the Savior. God gives to us his righteousness through Christ. Philippians 3.9 To be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Get the picture. Who are you? You're broken, you're fallen, you're flawed. But in Christ, through the blood of Christ, you are now viewed as holy and righteous. And that should kind of smack you a little bit because you know you. I don't know you, but you know you. You know that you're not quite righteous. And yet in God's eyes, if you are in Christ, that's exactly the label that he gives to you. That is precisely who you are. Not because of you, and Paul makes it really clear, not because of me, but because of Christ. Christ has done it all for you. 1 Corinthians 1, 28 through 30. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Jesus did the work that we had no ability to do on our own. 
Now, I grew up in Central Florida. I grew up in a fairly strict Southern Baptist church environment in Central Florida. Central Florida, if you don't know, that's the part of Florida that doesn't show up in travel brochures. Because it's not the beach and it's not Disney. I lived in between that. It's far more culturally Southern than you would think Florida really ought to be. And so I heard this song. Conservative estimate would say 9,238 times. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Grasp your identity. Who you are. Yes, it's true, you're broken and flawed sinner. But it's also true that in Christ, you are deeply loved. You are never alone. You have unending access to the king of glory. Can we think about that just real quick? Now, I don't want to get into British politics a whole lot, so spare me your opinion on what you think, what happened, and what should have happened, and why did it happen that way. But we know that Queen Elizabeth just passed away, and now King Charles is, in fact, King Charles, went from prince to king. How many of you would be able to, in an instant, to approach King Charles. Do you have any idea what would happen to you if you just tried to rush up to King Charles? You wouldn't make it 30 feet before you're on the floor. That's for a human king. And we treat him with reverence and respect and awe, to a degree. Eh, Maybe King Charles, maybe not awe so much. But there's a level of reverence and respect there for the title. the king of glory. I keep feeling the stage. I'm like, man, I'm, gonna, I'm like six inches away from falling off this thing. The king of glory gives us unfettered access. And he welcomes it. If you were to attempt to rush up to King Charles while he's sitting on his throne, I mean like the actual throne, not, not a toilet, but on his throne. Actually, either way, you're probably in trouble. <laughs> Different reasons, of course. But our God, the King of glory, says, would you please rush up here? I want you. But in Christ, he did something even better than that. He stepped off his throne and he approached us. He met us. And brought us back to him. This is the king of glory. That we get to worship. That we get to interact with. That we get to engage with on a regular basis. Whether in a group setting like this. Or when we're by ourselves. Huddled in tears in our cars. Because we have no idea what's going on. And we're crying out. And God says, I've heard every single thing you had to say. My favorite book of the Old Testament is, is Exodus. Like the first half of it. Like once they start getting into like how they're designing drapes and things, that's a little less interesting to me. But the whole part leading up to that, when the Israelites, when they are suffering under Egyptian tyranny, the text records for us 
that God saw and God heard. I love that picture. It means my pain has purpose. I might not understand it, but God sees it. And he hears it, and it matters to him, and it causes him to act. The king of glory is now acting daily, hourly, minute by minute into your life to remind you that he is, in fact, the king of glory. In Christ, we can boldly approach the throne of God. Verses 9 and 10 of Psalm 24. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. Again, as Jesus said in Luke 24, who is this king of glory? These are my words I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Jesus Christ is the king of glory, and he invites us, welcomes us, delights us to come to his throne and to his place. We can approach boldly. Hebrews 9, 24. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Think about the weight of what was just said by the writer of Hebrews. And if I want to start a theological fight, I'll tell you that I think it's Barnabas that wrote Hebrews. There you go. Done. I said it out loud. Jesus, long before you ever thought to pray about that thing that's occurring in your life, long before there's ever an inkling, maybe I should pray about this, Jesus was already talking to the Father saying, Dad, you see this? Remember, they're mine. Remember, I, I covered that. Grasp the gravity of the fact that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who suffered and died on the cross for us, is now interceding on our behalf on a regular basis. And he delights to do it. It's not an obligation to him. It's not, oh, well, here we go, fine. Even before you thought to pray for it, Jesus was already standing on your behalf next to the Father, pleading for us. Pleading to the King of glory. Hebrews 4.16, let us then with confidence. I'm just going to stop there. Let us then with confidence. When you pray, how do you pray? Do you pray with confidence? Are you willing to pray some frightening prayers? Frightening to you? Like, man, this is kind of big. I don't, I'm not so sure about this one. I want to pray because it seems like that's like the Jesus thing to do, but I, we were just told to pray with confidence. And how can you pray with confidence? 
You can pray with confidence because you know the one that you're praying to who acts on what he says, who's done and will do what he said he will do. This is a God who does not fail. This is a God who delights in his people, that longs to be a blessing to his people, that wants to love his people. So that should inform how you pray. So pray the scary stuff. God, I want you to change my marriage so it looks like you. God, I want you to fix my finances because they're out of control. God, I want you to do a revival, a restoration, a redemption in Marysville, in Snohomish County. But we pray very puny prayers. Please notice the pronoun that I used, we. I'm just as guilty. Again, I don't know any of y'all from Adam's house cat. Sorry, another southern expression. Just deal with it. I pray puny prayers. I pray the safe prayers. Jesus, help us to get to that place safely. Amen. Well, statistically speaking, there's a better than good chance I'm going to survive the trip to down to my in-laws place in Lakewood. Statistically speaking. I'm flying out to Denver for a conference this week. Statistically speaking, it's better than a good chance I'm going to survive. I'm much more likely to get struck by lightning than to die in a plane crash. And so those are easy to pray. Jesus, will you bless this food? I don't often pray the confident prayers. That says, God, you're big enough to do this. I don't pray in a way that matches up with the nature and the character of God. Remember, we just said at the beginning of Psalm 24 that he has complete control over everything, but too often my prayers are like, well, you know, I don't know if he's got this one. Maybe this is a category that he doesn't quite have his hands fully on just yet. And I pray weak, safe prayers. And so I was reading through this this week. I just got challenged again to pray confidently. But where's my confidence? Not in me, but in the one that I'm praying to. I have to acknowledge my own lack of confidence in order to pray in the one that I'm fully confident in. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. When you consider God on his throne, is that a place of grace that you think of? Or do you think of it as a place of dread? Is that maybe informing why we pray puny prayers? Or maybe why we allow ourselves to grow distant from God? Because, well, if I actually engage with God at this, he may not welcome me any longer. Brothers and sisters, can I plead with you? to reject that line of thinking because it's contrary to the very message of the gospel. Here's what makes Christianity unique. Only the bad people who acknowledge their own sense of badness get in. Every other religion, you have to work to try to be good and be better in order to get in. Christianity is the only one that says, nope, only the bad people get in if they're willing to acknowledge their badness. And if they can do that, awesome. We're in. We can party. It is the throne of grace. God delights to give grace. This king of glory delights to give grace. Why? Continuing in verse 16, that we may receive mercy 
It'd be a great name for a church. That we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The king of glory is fully aware and fully cognizant of the fact that there's going to be innumerable, num- that's repetitive, innumerable times that you need grace and mercy. And he's already wired up the system to then dispense grace and mercy. It is inexhaustible. Lamentations 3. If you've not hung out in Lamentations, you really should. I did like a whole like five-part sermon series on Lamentations. It was awesome. But right smack dab in the middle of Lamentations, which is all about lament, right smack dab in the middle of it, in Lamentations chapter 3, we're told his mercies are made new each morning. So you woke up this morning already underneath a big heaping pile of mercy. And God's already planned your mercy for tomorrow and then for Tuesday and into eternity. You wake up under a cloud of mercy because God the Father knows you're going to need it. You're going to need grace. And so he sits on a throne of grace, eager to dispense grace over and over and over again. And what's really remarkable about this king of glory who controls everything, gives grace even when we forget to ask for it. Almost as like a a trigger, a reminder. Wow, man, that was, whoa, I should be asking for grace more often. At no point does God say, there is an allotment of grace. You've already asked for enough today. Stop it. In my house, several years ago, I got challenged that a conversation arose in my home. Carl, have you ever wondered why the kids ask me for things and not you? (laughs) No, I've never wondered that at all. I just thought I was doing a good job of creating such a place that there was no sense of expectation. I was providing all that my kids needed not knowing they were going to my wife. She says, because often when they come to you, the answer is no. And so right there in that conversation, I asked for Jesus' help to transform me into a different kind of dad. At the risk of embarrassing my children, I want to be the dad of reasonable yes. That as often as possible, I want to say yes. Within reason. That's why the reasonable is in in there. Why do I want to do that? Because I know that's what the Father does with me. That he longs to say yes to as much reasonably as he can. Some of us don't really know what God's reasonable yes is because we don't ever approach him with confidence to ask. Remember, this is the king of glory who controls everything. Ask. And even if he says no, it starts a conversation. 
It begins an opportunity for you to interact with him, to figure out why is he saying no. Or maybe he's not saying no, maybe he's just saying, hey, that's a good idea. Well, let's hold off for a bit. The King of Glory invites us. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This is God's love for you. This is what he's done for you in Christ. Your new identity as a follower of Christ as you are holy, set apart, righteous, loved. If you're not yet a follower of Jesus, I hope you're getting a glimpse of what your life could be, of who you could be, of what your future might look like. I wouldn't want to lie to you and say that becoming a follower of Jesus makes your life easy. It doesn't. It actually makes it a little bit more difficult. But it comes with a heaping amount of grace and mercy from the God who controls everything, doing everything ultimately for your good and for his glory. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you so very much that you have first given us your word that we might know your mind and your heart. We thank you for revealing yourself to us through your word so that we don't have to guess about what you think or how you're going to act. We thank you that because of your word, we can know that we know that we know that as your followers, we are overwhelmed daily by your grace and by your mercy. Father, I pray that we as your people would begin to think and live and speak as if that really is true. I pray that you would remind us that you are in control of everything. Nothing escapes your attention. And nothing is beyond your power. I pray that would shape the way that we think of ourselves, but also the way that we think of you. I pray that we would become people who pray with confidence, knowing who it is that we're praying to. Father, for those who are hearing this and have not yet trusted you, I pray that they're getting a picture as to who you are, that you would bring them to a place where they're willing to acknowledge the depth of their sin and brokenness and recognize there is nothing that they can do about it because Jesus did it all. And I pray they would trust in the risen Christ as their Savior. Father, I thank you for Mercy Fellowship, for their desire to love you, to obey you, and to serve you well. I pray that you would multiply their impact on this community for the sake of the kingdom. I pray that you would transform lives on the inside of this church families and then equip them to go and be messengers of transformation to those who are on the outside. Father, I pray for Pastor Chris and, um, and the rest of the leadership here that you would supernaturally equip and energize them to introduce and to remind that you are the king 
of glory. Father, we thank you for your goodness and your kindness towards us. We'll be very quick to give you all the praise and the glory for any and 